Well, here we are again, Church on the Beach, and uh, we're going to get started today with the 102nd Psalms. Let me read that to you before we get into some announcements. Psalm 102, a prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let, me, let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to, my, to me. In the day that I call, answer me speedily. For my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are, like, are burned like a hearth. My heart is stricken and withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread. Because of the sound of my groaning, my bones cling to my skin. I am like a pelican of the wilderness. I am like an owl of the desert. I lie awake and am like a sparrow, alone on the housetop. My enemies reproach me all day long. Those who deride me swear an oath against me. For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping because of your indignation and your wrath, for you have lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a shadow that lengthens and I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, shall endure forever in the remembrance of your name to all generations. You will arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time has come for your servants take pleasure in her stones and show favor to her dust. So the nations shall fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth, your glory. For the Lord shall build up Zion. He shall appear in his glory. He shall regard the prayer of the destitute and shall not despise their prayer. This will be written for a generation to come that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. For he looked down from the height of his sanctuary. From heaven, the Lord viewed the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to release those appointed to death to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem. When the peoples are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord, he shortened my days. I said, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years, years are throughout all generations. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. The children of your servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before you. Glorious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this beautiful weather. Early in November, and we still have warm weather and blue skies and sunshine, and it's just glorious out here, and we thank you for that. And we thank you for the week that's gone past and how you've safely brought us here, brought us through every possible trial that could come along you just kept them at bay so that we're in good health and uh, we're all here to praise you and give you the glory and honor that you're due thank you for the fish from the sea and the cattle on a thousand hills and for every good thing that comes from your open hand of grace lord we love you we praise you and we want to give you the honor and the glory and the praise that you are due so help us to honor you today during this service and to handle your word rightly so that you will be honored through that as well Oh, God, thank you above all for the gift of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, we've got a couple of announcements here. I've mentioned this, and I'll keep mentioning it, that uh, I wear a hat now instead of a bandana because I cut my hair. But I have to wear a hat because if I don't, the sun shines off my bald head, and it makes the camera look horrible. So um, uh, just so you know, that's why I'm wearing a hat while I preach. And then uh, we have changed from 10.30 to 10 o'clock, and... Uh, I know that uh, a few of you made it, and uh, it looks like several people haven't made it, but that's okay. And um, it'll be 10 o'clock from now on out here, as long as we have these trees above us. And uh, just for the people on the uh, video, 
it looks like the uh, county is contemplating cutting down all the trees because they've all been marked, which is usually a sign they're going to take them out. And if that's the case, then we're going to have to think of something else to do because we can't meet in the hot sun in Florida. And also the wind will be very strong without these trees. So uh, we'll have to just see how uh, things uh, go in that context. But for uh, now, at least we're here to meet in the Green Cathedral. And um, I, I mention this from time to time is that uh, if anybody wants to be baptized, there's water right off, off to the left. And uh, uh, baptism is a picture of our acceptance of Jesus Christ. And it is something that should be done after we accept him as Lord. And what it is, is it's a picture of being buried with him in his death and being raised to newness of life through the power of the resurrection. So if anybody here at any time wants to be baptized, I'll do it any day of the year. doesn't matter how hot or cold. I'll be happy to do that. And I look at it as an honor. Um, we still have Paul and Elaine for another probably month and a half in Japan as our missionaries. And uh, they will be coming back after that. I don't know when they'll be in Sarasota, but I'd ask that you would continue to pray for them until they've completed their missionary work over there. And I know that they've had just a wonderful year, and the pictures they've sent and the, the uh, stories that they've told so far have really been wonderful. They've blessed me every month with their uh, monthly update. And uh, I mentioned this uh, for the past two or three months, and I'm going to mention it for the last time today, is that Tuesday is the upcoming elections. And we have moral choices to make in this nation. And I would hope that each person here would make the moral choice that is founded on the Bible. Uh, one particular party, the Democrat Party, supports uh, abortion and homosexuality, which are anti-biblical precepts. And so I would ask people to consider those concepts when they go in to vote. If you've already voted, then uh, your choice is made. But uh, I do not believe that we can... Uh, separate ourselves from the moral decisions we make. And voting in this country is a moral decision. And it's more and more so as time goes by. Um, this is our 48th sermon in the book of Genesis. And uh, uh, it's been so far a wonderful adventure. Today we come to one of the real pinnacle chapters of Genesis and what it pictures. It's going to take us two uh, weeks to get through this sermon, but it is astonishingly beautiful in what God is showing us through Abraham and his son Isaac. And um, one other thing for people that are here and uh, anybody that's in Sarasota that watches this on video is that I have a million bromeliads at my house. And if anybody likes bromeliads, they're very easy to maintain. You can plant them anywhere. You can plant them up in trees or, you know, in the ground and they just, they don't die. They just keep living because they get their nutrition out of the air. But every year I pull out hundreds and hundreds of them and I have to throw them away if nobody takes them. So if anybody wants bromeliads, I live right down the road. You can stop by on the way home and uh, pick up all you want. I got millions of them. And uh, let's see here. Is there anything else in the announcements? I think that's all of those. So what I'm going to do is we'll have a New Testament reading, which uh, today will be Romans 8, verses 1 through 11. And uh, as I say each week, I don't prepare for this. I just read, and if anything comes to mind, I real quickly give an analysis of it. But there's nothing, um, it's not like an in-depth Bible study or anything, just so that we can have the New Testament read to us. Because if we didn't do this, it would be, you know, another 35 years before we got through the, New, the Old Testament and into the New. So it's good to be reminded of the fulfillment of the things that we're looking at now. Um, chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul's been speaking about the Spirit in the flesh for uh, during chapter 7, and that the uh, principle of coming to Jesus Christ is the moment that you accept him as Lord and Savior, 
The Bible says in the book of Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. It happens the moment that you accept that you cannot save yourself and you ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. And so he's saying that those people that are now sealed with the Holy Spirit, they should be walking according to the Spirit as well. And he's saying there is no condemnation in those people. And what that means is that you are saved, you are eternally saved. And there are verses that people will come to you and they'll say, well, salvation isn't eternal and you can do something wrong and you can lose your salvation. And they'll try to confuse you with that. And if you ever have somebody pr propose that to you or you see something on Facebook that kind of scares you away from that, send me an email and I have done an evaluation of the entire New Testament. I've done a, a daily devotional now for many, many years. And uh, we're all the way to the book of Revelation now, Revelation 21.3, I think, or something. But um, uh, I can show you where their flaw is. And what they're doing is they're taking a single verse out of context. You cannot lose your salvation, but you sure can lose your joy, and you can also lose your rewards. So please hold fast to your faith in Jesus Christ, and don't let that slip. Um, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The law of Moses brought about sin and death. What Remember we talked about that is that uh, we may not have even known what sin was until God gives us a commandment. And as soon as he gives us the commandment, sin revives in us. Why? Because all of a sudden we know that we're a sinner. I didn't know what coveting was until God said, don't covet. And all of a sudden, God says, don't covet, and I become a sinner before the law. And that brings about death. Because as Moses said, if you do these things, you will live by them. But nobody can do them. Nobody can meet the strict demands of the law. Hence our need for Christ Jesus. Verse 3, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, meaning me, I know that I can't do this thing, I'm going to screw up 400,000 times a day. He says, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus Christ stepped out of eternity and put on humanity. And he lived the law that we cannot live. He came in the, the how did he say it? I don't want to misquote that. He says, um, uh, he, in the likeness of sinful flesh. He did not inherit Adam's sin, as all people do. Uh, sin travels through the Father, so we inherit sin through the Father. He was born of the Holy Spirit and of Mary. He had no human father, and so sin did not transfer to him. Likewise, he lived sinlessly for the entire time of his life, and then he gave his life up as a sacrifice for our sins. All right, And by doing that, he condemned sin in the flesh. Sin is now dead to us because of what he did. Not because we are now sinless. We don't want to make that category mistake, and many denominations will. They'll say you can attain a, uh, a state of sinlessness in this life. No, we are totally reliant on the work of Jesus Christ until the day we close our eyes and are glorified by him. Okay, verse 4. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. It is a transfer. Adam sinned, we received Adam's sin. Jesus Christ did not sin. By calling on him as Lord and Savior, he transfers to us his sinlessness. That doesn't mean we're sinless, but we are sinless in his overall corporate body. And so we are positionally sinless in him. His blood covers anything we do. And so when God the Father sees us, he does not see our sinful state. He sees Christ's righteousness. All right, and I've just lost my place, so give me a second. Um, verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. 
but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Now, Paul is making an obvious uh, connection here that when we come to Jesus Christ, our minds are set on the things of the Spirit. We can lose that, and it's important to understand that. If you read the book of uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, and you go down all the way to verse 9, he says that there are people that actually forget that they are saved. It doesn't mean that they're not saved anymore, and Peter makes that clear. But what he does say is that we should add to our salvation, you know, kindness and brotherly kindness and love and all of these things. He goes through a category of things that we should do, one increasing to another. And by doing that, we will be holy in the presence of the Lord. But we can actually not do those things and come to the place where we have forgotten that we were saved. And a lot of people will actually be taken up at the rapture and they will be surprised standing in the presence of the Lord saying, you know, I'd forgotten that I was saved by your precious blood. But Paul is letting us know that we should not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Verse um, six, for to be carnally minded is death. Well, of course, that's true. That goes back to what he said about the law. When we have our mind on the things of the flesh, it brings about sin and death. But the spiritually minded, to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So if we put our mind on the things of God, then we will have that life coming up in us like a wellspring and we will have peace with God, not striving against him. Verse seven, but the carnal mind is enmity with God. You're fighting against God when you're in the flesh. And all you need to do as a proof of that is just go on to Facebook and anybody that's never called on Jesus Christ will always have a war going on inside of them. They're at enmity with God. And as a matter of fact, the book of Ephesians says that if you have not called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are a child of wrath. You are under God's wrath until you come to Christ, and then you're adopted as the son of God. So there's this giant contrast between the two. But to be carnal-minded is enmity or fighting with God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor can it be. All right? Um, because the carnal-minded... Oh, I'm sorry, verse 8. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It doesn't matter. And I'm going to talk about this today, coming up in just a, uh, the beginning of the sermon. I'm going to talk about works versus faith and how works can never, never save us. And I'm going to give an example. I'll give it right now and I'll give it again during the sermon. Is that if Bill Gates gives a billion dollars for AIDS research and he's not a Christian and I give a billion dollars for AIDS research and I am a Christian and I do it for the name of Jesus and he doesn't, he will get no rewards for it. And in fact, all he's doing is he's setting up an idol in his heart because he's saying, look at the good thing I've done to merit whatever God there is out there. I'm getting his favor by doing this. Where in me giving that money to, to, uh, for AIDS research in the name of Jesus, I am giving him the glory. And I'm not saying I've done this because I deserve it. I'm doing it because I am having faith in what Christ has done on my behalf. Okay? So um, you cannot please God if you're in the flesh. Verse 9, but... You are not in the flesh, speaking to the people that have called on Jesus, but in the Spirit, sealed with the Spirit the moment you believe. That's Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. I said that earlier. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And that should be as obvious as, just as obvious as it can be. It's like saying if you don't have, um, if you weren't born through Adam, then you're not a man. Obviously, if you're born through Adam, you are a human being. And it doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter how tall you are or, you know, if you're fat or skinny or anything else. It's obvious that that's a human being. Nobody walks up to a panda bear and says, oh, there's a human being. And nobody walks up to a human being unless they're really depraved and says that is not a human being. We have hopefully overcome that in this nation. But there were, was a time when we said certain people were not human beings. But inherently, we know that they are. They're rational thinking human beings. Okay? So, um, he says... Um, 
where was I? And now if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if in Christ, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. My body and my sinful state is crucified with Jesus Christ. It is there on the cross. And the life that I am living now is being lived to God because of the spirit that sealed me. And as I said, even if I've forgotten that precept, God never has. He has accepted me as his child. I will not lose my salvation, but I will lose my rewards and certainly my joy. Because if you go through life having been sealed by the Holy Spirit and not living for him, then he is going to be there all the time working against you. And this happened just this week. I sent out my uh, birthday wishes, as I do every day, to all the people that have birthdays. And one person uh, said that he was saved in high school at uh, uh, Campus Life or Youth for Christ or something like that. And he says, but now, you know, blah, blah, blah. And his email, in other words, he's not really following Christ. His email, you could see the tension that he has in his own life because of not living for the Lord and the questioning that he has going on in his email back to me included questions that he wants answered even though he doesn't realize he does so i told him next time you're in sarasota we'll get together and we'll talk about anything you want and i'd like to tell you about you know the answer to your questions as well and he said that he'd be happy to do so and i know he will be because the spirit is in there working in him trying to get him to understand that the salvation he receives is received is still there and it's fighting warring against him okay um, I think I read 10, but I'm going to read it again. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's a little taste of the rapture there. It's not uh, uh, you know, a, a rapture verse by any means, but you can see the logical progression of that when you get into 1 Corinthians 15 and also 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, is that Christ is regenerating our spirit in our mortal bodies. And there is some day when that will actually turn into a wellspring of eternal life, when we have immortal bodies and we are living in the presence of the Lord Jesus. Wonderful stuff from the book of Romans. And um, we'll go ahead and read one more psalm before we get into the sermon. And this will be the 103rd Psalm. This is a Psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like eagles, the Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. And thank God for that, because if he had, we'd all, be, we'd all be gone right now. Nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it and it is gone, and it, its place remembers it no more. But 
The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do them. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you, his angels, who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you hosts, you ministers of his who do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Hallelujah. Okay, today we're going to go through, as I said, uh, it's going to take two weeks to get through Genesis 22. Today we're going to go through Genesis 22, 1 through 8. And this is called By Faith. Abraham. Before we do that, as I do every week, I'm going to give you this day in history, starting with, um, it's 4 November. We're going to start with 1880, when James and John Ritty patented the first cash register. And no real big deal to me, but if you've ever worked behind a counter, you know that uh, they do help with things, but that there are people that are always cunning enough to defeat the cash register, which the entire premise of this piece of equipment was to keep completely... uh, honest the employees of the place where uh, these guys uh, patented this they thought that this was an infallible way of getting around theft and of course it wasn't but uh, anyway that was in 1880 and then in 1922 in Egypt Howard Carter discovered the entry of the lost tomb of Pharaoh Tutankhamun and I was reading about that this morning and it was um, 22 days later that they actually got down the stairway and they got to the wall and he chiseled, took a chisel that his mother had given him when he was 17 years old, and he chiseled through the wall, and uh, he held a candle in there, and he looked through, and somebody says, what do you see? And his answer was, wonderful things. And so this happened uh, in 1922, and it's just a real wonderful story about how God has preserved these type of things for later generations to see the the people that kept his own people in bondage. And it's just, it's to me, it's always fascinating how God ties things together. Some people actually believe that Tutankhamun was the pharaoh of the uh, Exodus. Whether that's true or not cannot be proved definitively, but there are good, interesting parallels that point to that. In uh, 1939, at the 40th National Automobile Show, something that everybody here in Florida will be very happy about, the first air conditioner car was put on display. And, um, you know, I grew up with the little wing windows on the cars that we had, and eventually they disappeared. But uh, uh, air conditioning in a car is a real commodity down here, as you all know. Now, the next one I'm going to make a comment about, and I hope nobody here gets mad at me about it, but I want to say why I even included this, because it's not interesting to me at all. But uh, there's just something that irks me about it. A lady named Leanne Roberts Breedlove became the first woman to exceed 300 miles an hour when she went 308.5 miles an hour. And the reason why I don't like this particular type of thing is if it said she was the first woman to go uh, to run the uh, mile in under four minutes, I would think that's a real achievement because men and women are different physically. And so it's a real achievement to be the first woman to do that. Now, I don't give a diddly if she's the first woman to be able to put her foot on an accelerator and go over 300 miles an hour. Whoever makes that first break of the 300 mile an hour speed limit, whether it's a male, a female, a black or a white, doesn't make any difference. That is the first human achievement of that particular thing. And the reason why I bring this up is because you always hear things like, well, the first uh, black person to reach the North Pole. Well, who cares? You know, it's like saying the first Polish, um, you know, uh, whatever to make the North Pole. It's been done. So there is a difference in human achievement when that human achievement is limited by the body. But when it's 
limited by just an accelerator pedal, it doesn't mean anything to me. So, and you know, I try to be as fair as I can about human achievement. All people are created in God's image and we are all capable of doing certain things. And that's why I brought that up. Anyway, in uh, 1990, this one kind of made me laugh when I saw it at the beginning of the week. It said, um, Iraq issued a statement saying it was prepared to fight a dangerous war rather than give up Kuwait. And uh, yeah, they fought a dangerous war. It was dangerous right to uh, the destruction of the country. And uh, uh, we did liberate Kuwait. And uh, as I've said, I've said this in several sermons, is that what we did there was because we had a treaty with Kuwait. And if we didn't do that, then we would have violated the treaty and all of the other treaties that we have with other nations of the world. They would have said, you know, you, you, your paper is no good. Your word is no good. So we were under an obligation to do this. And uh, just today, somebody posted this crazy thing on Facebook about, you know, how bad America is because we do these wars and how we owe Bill Clinton an apology because he, uh, uh, you know, we rebuked him about having an adulterous affair, but we can c conduct wars. That's what nations do. Nations conduct wars. Nations penalize robbers and they penalize criminals. And when somebody kills another person, the Bible says that their life is forfeit. It's when we get away from the Bible that we get that kind of ideology. So just thought I'd bring that up as that uh, this was uh, on this day in uh, 1990 that that uh, statement was issued. And at the time I was in Malaysia, it was a Muslim nation. And I mentioned this last week, they were all up in arms about how bad America was fighting another Muslim nation until after the war and the Kuwaitis came through and showed the Malaysians what had been done to them by other Muslims. And boy, were they sorry for even protesting against us. It was a very, very sad display that was shown what happened to the people of Kuwait. Anyway, here we go with Genesis 22, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to read them first, and then we'll get into uh, the sermon. Now it came to pass, after these things, that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac, his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and the lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father and said, my father. Then he said, here I am, my son. Then he said, look at the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself the lamb of the burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Abraham, as we've seen throughout the entire life, starting with, uh, I believe it was Genesis 12, where he was actually introduced. It might have been chapter 11, but he has been a man of faith and he's been recognized as such throughout the entire Bible. And today we're going to see Abraham's faith put to the test from this account in this book, right here in Genesis, James will later cite this particular account and Abraham's deeds, what he did as a point of justification in connection with his faith. I'm not going to read you that verse, but I'll explain it to you as I'll read it later, is that it says Abraham uh, was justified by his deeds and not by faith alone. And on the surface, this seems to contradict Paul's idea of justification by faith alone. Paul doesn't just say it once. He says it several times through the New Testament. 
but it only seems to contradict it until we come to the realization that Abraham's deeds are, in fact, deeds of faith. The deeds that Abraham accomplishes and the deeds that we accomplish cannot be counted for justification apart from faith behind the deeds. And I explained that a minute ago with, um, uh, what's his name, uh, Bill Gates. Bill Gates does something that uh, isn't done in the name of the Lord, and I do because I have faith in the Lord. I will receive a reward. He will receive nothing. Understanding that it is faith and faith alone that justifies us, frees us from attempting to accomplish deeds for the sake of deeds. In other words, doing things only for the sake of the doing merely produces a never-ending cycle of frustration because the doing can never please God. And even if it could, suppose doing could please God. We have no idea how much doing would do so. And so we'd be in this cycle of frustration saying, maybe I need to do more, maybe I need to do more. Only the faith behind our deeds can please him. This might sound a little bit like doublespeak, but what Abraham does in the coming two sermons is an act of faith. Not in the act itself, but in the outcome of the action. Life from death. And that brings us to our text verse today, which is from Luke chapter 3. It's verse 8. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Jesus speaks of fruits worthy of repentance, as does the entire Bible. If you have faith in God and accomplish a task because of that faith in him and someone else doesn't believe in God, and he does the same task, you will receive their reward, and you will receive your reward, and they will receive none. You see, it is faith, and it is faith alone which pleases God. And so may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is go to the land of Moriah. Everything that has happened to Abraham since his call, his original call back in chapter 12, has led to the passage that we're going to look at today and next week. It is the culmination of everything God has prepared him for, and it is the crowning achievement of Abraham's life. Four times in Abraham's life, he has been asked to set something aside to gain something greater. The first is when he was called out of the land of idolatry, which was Ur of the Chaldees, and called into the land of promise. And at that time, he was given these great and glorious promises about his name and about the multitude of descendants that would come from him. He'd be the father of many nations. Seven times these promises have been made and they've been built upon. And each step has been responded to in faith by this man of faith. The next time he set something aside was when he separated from his nephew Lot, whom he had grown up with and he was very close to. If you remember the story, Lot and Abraham were living together. They'd grown in, in uh, servants and in wealth and in livestock to the point where they could no longer reside together. There was fighting going on between their servants. And so Abraham graciously said, if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. And if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. So this is what occurred at the time of Lot. And during that account and after this, there are long delays between the promises made to him. And these delays have molded him into a man of patience and reliance on God's timing. He has conquered armies and he has spoken with God as a friend. He has petitioned the Lord for the sake of his family as well as others. He was told to be blameless, walk blamelessly before God. If you remember that back in Genesis 15. And that does not mean when he said walk before me and be blameless just to 
act blamelessly, but actually the intent behind his actions as well. In God's good timing, he received the son of promise, Isaac. And in validation that he accepts Isaac as the son of promise, he received his third great trial. He was setting aside someone very close to him. This came about when he sent his firstborn son, Ishmael, away from the camp. Isaac then, along with those who would descend from him, is the highest prize of Abraham's life. And so through this son of highest value, he will have his character tested in the highest measure. This is Abraham's fourth, and it's his greatest test, and the one which will establish him for all times as the Bible's premier example of a man of faith. Every aspect of his life has been brought into focus to this one point as a preparation for this moment. His resolve, his holy walk, his benevolent nature, his fatherly affections towards both of his sons, all of these are ready for this final immense test. What God is like is what Abraham has been molded into. And what Abraham faces is what God himself will someday demonstrate. The man and his life, particularly this point in his life, will be used to show us the very heart of God and the wonder of his love towards us. Our first verse today, now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. After these things is talking about the events of the preceding chapter. It took us three sermons to get through it. In the first eight verses was the recorded uh, birth of Isaac up until the time of his weaning when he was three years old. In the next 13 verses, the account of the expulsion of Ishmael and his mother Hagar from Abraham's camp was noted. And then finally in verses 22 through 34, which we looked at last week, came the detailed story concerning Abraham's treaty with Abimelech, which included Abraham's right to the land of Beersheba. The very last verse of that chapter was uh, chapter 21. It said, Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. And so it is after these things that God tested Abraham. And this is where we begin today. This coming account is one that is so rich and so theologically significant that no matter how closely we look at it, we will unfortunately only scratch its surface. And I don't mean us here today. I mean every human that has ever read this account and thought on it can only scratch the surface of what God is showing us. After the previous events, it says that God tested Abraham. The term used in this verse is one that is very specific and it's been used on other occasions. It does not say God tested Abraham in the original. It says the God tested Abraham. And it is emphatic. When we see the term the God in Hebrew rather than the term God, we want to ask ourselves, why? Why is God saying that? And the reason goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 at the fall of man, where Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent. What happens here with Abraham is by the hand of the one true God. It is not a satanic subterfuge. The Bible is making absolutely sure that we note this in this verse. It is not a test, therefore, which would result in disobedience if accomplished, but obedience, as you can see the contrast between the fall of man and this here. Abraham will be obedient if he obeys. Eve was disobedient because she obeyed the words of the devil. Likewise, if Abraham fails to do this, he will be disobedient. In order to avoid any confusion in this verse, 
The New King James Version, which I use for trans, uh, my uh, Bible uh, sermons here, says that God tested Abraham. Some other versions, which you may read, will say that God tempted Abraham. However, the book of James, which is the 59th book of the Bible, right towards the very end, says that God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. This is a test. It is not a temptation. To avoid confusion and the need to make excuses as to why tempt here doesn't mean tempt elsewhere, the term test is used. Unless you're Bill Clinton, there's no point in trying to explain why a word doesn't mean what a word means. The Hebrew word here means to prove or to try. And so test is a much better translation in our modern English. But the root of this word is very interesting, possibly means glistening or light. And so what is occurring here is a highlighting of Abraham's character by giving him the opportunity to show all successive ages the nature and worth of unshaken faith in the power and in the glory of God. Verse 2, then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac. You have to appreciate this, or you can really only appreciate this if you hear it in the Hebrew. Now, my Hebrew, you know, isn't very good, but I want to read it to you and see if you can hear what's happening. The order in which these words are placed in the Hebrew gradually increases in anticipation and it raises the emotions higher and higher. The detail and the minuteness of what is being said is meant to elicit the highest sense of the importance of what's coming. If you've ever read Shakespeare, you know that he will do this with the language so that you're almost waiting for the next word to come out. And that's what God is doing with this verse. It is intended to preclude any doubt in Abraham. Every word is detailed, it is emphatic, and it is striking. And it leads to the ultimate conclusion of the verse where my hair is standing up, the word Isaac. In other words, to show Abraham what he most wanted to know. He was going to use what Abraham most wanted to keep. He wanted to know God's plan of redemption for mankind. He wanted to know the mystery behind it. And so in order for Abraham to see this, God directs him in a way in which he would someday show the world the extent of his own divine love and goodness to fallen man. God did not spare his own son, but instead delivered him up, even though he'd done no wrong. He was innocent and he was loved. And so to allow Abraham the experience of what it was like for God to accomplish this task, he directs him to do the same. For all intents and purposes, and this is very important to remember as we go through these verses, Isaac is dead to Abraham from this moment right here. God says, take your son, your only son, when in fact Abraham has another son. This then indicates the nature of the sacrifice. It is the son of promise. It is Isaac. And so the pattern of God's sacrifice is laid out. There is a firstborn son and there is a son of promise. One will live and one will die. And thus we read in Exodus 4, verse 22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And thus we read in John 3:16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, 
God is doing something in the pages of the Bible, and we've seen this pattern at least six or seven times, and we're going to see it 20 or 30 more times as we go through the Bible. The second, replacing the first. This is God's doctrine of divine election. When the second replaces the first, it is ultimately pointing to the work of Jesus Christ replacing Adam. Adam is the first man. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus is the second man. We are dead in Adam. We are alive in Christ. And we touched on that during our New Testament reading today. But that is what God is doing here by showing us that Ishmael will live, but Isaac is to be sacrificed. Verse 2 continues, Whom you love, meaning Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. Whom you love is meant to indicate Abraham's highest love. In other words, Abraham surely loved Sarah, and he loved Ishmael too, but the love of Abraham for Isaac is the highest love of his soul. Abraham is asked to take this love and go off to the land of Moriah. Moriah means chosen by Jehovah. And so so what God is basically saying is, go to the land that I have chosen, It is a particular place which out of all of my creation is designated for a particular purpose. Moriah is mentioned only one other time in the entire Bible, and it is in the book of two Chronicles. It's the third chapter and the first verse, and here's what Solomon says, or the chronicler says about it. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared unto David his father, in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Now this will be a little bit confusing if you don't understand what's going on, but this place was noted as the place where Abraham was to sacrifice Isaac. And then it's called something else, the threshing floor of Ornan, or in, uh, his name is also Arauna, and people get confused with that as well. But this guy owned this threshing floor, and it's in a city called Jebus. And this city, it's very interesting how this almost matches Washington, D.C. We have our northern states and our southern states, and yet we have the district in between the two, and it's not really a part of any state. It's a government agency. Well, that's kind of the way that it is with this uh, area of Jerusalem, is that when Israel was divided, you had the land of Judah and the land of Israel, and they warred against each other, but Jerusalem was in the middle of the two. It was, wasn't really a part of either. Well, David bought this piece of property from this guy, Orauna, or or Nan, he's known by both names, and then he was instructed that this is where the temple is going to be. And so Solomon was the one to build the temple. He built it there on the Temple Mount. We have the deed of purchase for this Temple Mount, and it is still there today, the Temple Mount. And this is the spot that is the most contested spot of real estate on planet Earth right now. You've got three religions that are all claiming some type of Uh, ownership to it. We through Jesus Christ, the Jews because of the history here, and the Muslims because they say it's where Muhammad rode a horse up to heaven from, which didn't happen, okay? But we know who owns this Temple Mount. I've brought it up in other sermons, is that there's one person that is alive who has title deed to this Temple Mount. And the reason why is because his generations from David are recorded. They're recorded in the pages of the Bible in Matthew 1 and in Luke chapter 3. And Jesus Christ is alive, and therefore he is the only person on earth that has a right to the Temple Mount. And he's going to return to that spot. And he is going to rule the nations from there someday. But that's all for other sermons in the future. Verse 2 continues, And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. The son of promise, 
the only begotten son of Abraham is to be made a burnt offering. The exact method of such an offering was first to cut the throat and to bleed the offering to death and then to cut it open and to pull the entrails out and wash them and make sure they're clean and then to cut it up into quarters and then to lay the pieces on the wood and then finally to burn it to ashes. So imagine the thought of Abraham knowing that this is going to happen. Were we to trace every avenue of this particular verse through the Bible, it would go well into the night talking about it because the book of Leviticus in particular has dozens and dozens of offerings and they're explained in great detail. But just so you know, this is the spot where the temple stood and it is the mountain where God's only son died. At that moment when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn. It's recorded in the book of Matthew. And he passed through that veil and he presented his blood as the fulfillment of all of the offerings in the Old Testament, which only prefigure his work. When this blood was presented, it restored access to God for fallen man. Paul records the type of offering that Jesus made in the book of Ephesians. Here's what it says. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. The term here, sweet-smelling aroma, is directly linked to the burnt offering that Abraham is being asked to make. The death of Isaac upon the altar is given as a foreshadowing of the death of Jesus on the cross. The son of promise, he was miraculously born of this barren womb by a woman that was past the age of childbearing, prefigures the Lord who was miraculously born of a virgin womb. The sacrifice of Isaac on Mount Moriah then is a similar picture of Jesus' cross. So from his birth to the coming sacrifice, Isaac is picturing the Lord Jesus Christ. Our second thought today is the third day. Verse three, so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. As I said earlier, in point of fact, Isaac is already dead to Abraham right now. Though the action has not yet come, the state of mind has. And Abraham is probably numb from contemplation of what was directed. But in obedience to God, the record says that he rose early in the morning. He was probably told to do this in a night vision. And as soon as the morning dawns, he sets out to complete what was directed. Time and time again, we've seen Abraham's immediate response to every task that he's been given. He's a man of promptness and he's a man of obedience. A particular point about this verse, which we can only speculate on, and yet we shouldn't miss it, is that Abraham's donkey is saddled. All right. When we think this passage through, and although it's unstated, Isaac will ride a donkey next to his father. It wouldn't make any sense to have one donkey with Isaac walking all the way. And so we have, again, another pattern of the coming Christ revealed. And it's explained in the book of Zechariah, chapter 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, and he is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Just as Isaac's birth prefigures Jesus' birth, and just as Isaac's weaning prefigured the birth of the church at Pentecost, and just as Isaac's sacrifice is to prefigure Jesus' death, so Isaac's ride to that death here prefigures Jesus' triumphal ride into Jerusalem. Verse 3 continues, 
And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Here we have another picture of the coming Messiah. The verse says that Abraham split the wood for the burnt offering. He has probably a thousand or more people in his camp, and yet he split the wood. It is an act of intimacy, and it is an act of personal responsibility. And in the same way, God is the creator. And in Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 11, we read this. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed and the fruit that yields the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And so it was. God used a portion of his own creation, a tree, in the sacrifice of his son. So the work of Abraham prefigures that great act in his personal responsibility, which it's foreshadowing, the cutting of the wood. And so off they head from Beersheba to the spot where history itself began, where it climaxed at the cross of Jesus Christ and where it will continue on for all of eternity. The mountains of Moriah, Jerusalem. Verse four, then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. It's about 45 miles if you go from Beersheba to Jerusalem. And the mournful trip for Abraham took two full days. Although we're not gonna come to the end of that story today, the two days of the journey once again prefigured the time from Jesus' cross until his resurrection. As I said earlier, Isaac's death occurred to Abraham the moment he was told to sacrifice him. They arrived at the mountain to accomplish their task on the third day. And this same is true with Jesus, who ascended the hill of Calvary on Friday, and he was resurrected on the third day, on a Sunday morning. God has left out no detail. Everything foreshadows Jesus Christ. What is coming in the next sermon prefigures that great day when hope was restored to the hearts that were filled with grief, just as it was in Abraham, just as it was in the apostles and in the friends of Jesus. Sadness comes for a moment, but joy is everlasting. There are many other third days mentioned in the Bible, but one in particular needs to be addressed here in conjunction with both the binding of Isaac and the resurrection of Jesus Christ because it points to the return of Jesus Christ. In the book of Hosea, chapter six, we read these words, come and let us return to the Lord for he has torn, but he will heal us. He is stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain like the latter and former rain to the earth. Now, this isn't gonna make a lot of sense unless you understand a much deeper review of what he's talking about. But in Psalm 90, verse four, and in 2 Peter 3, 8, they both say that a day to the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. So this prophecy of Hosea tells us that the Jewish nation will, after a period of two days or 2,000 years, be revived. And this has happened exactly as was prophesied. It also says that they will return to the Lord at the time that they're brought back together and that he will raise them up on the third day. What that means is that they will be the head of the nations and the law will go forth from Zion, just as it says all throughout the Old Testament. So in other words, so that you can understand this, it, from Jesus' own mouth, he said that he will return to Israel when they call on him as Lord at the dawning of the third millennium from their exile. So we are right at that point in human history right now. 
And as a confirmation of that, verse 3 says that he will come to them like the former and the latter rains. And this is interesting to note that the rain cycle in the land of Israel was disrupted for the past 2,000 years. And only now that Israel is back in the land has the land been repopulated with forests and the two rains have returned. The reason why is because when the Romans exiled the Jewish people, they cut down all the trees in the nation. And so these former and latter rains stopped happening. But with the return of the Jews, they planted all these trees, the forests began to sprout, and now they have these two rains once again in the land of Israel. And the book of James, which I brought up a couple times already, speaks about this exact occurrence in chapter 5. Here's what it says. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. In other words, Israel the people are back in the land. Israel the land is again receiving the former and the latter, the missing rain cycle. And now that it has returned, the Bible assures us that the Lord's return is imminent. Verse 5, And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. Abraham confirms right here that he and Isaac are both going to return to the servants, even though Isaac is to be offered as a burnt offering. Either Abraham is crazy, he's accommodating his words to soften the blow to the people around him, or he's lying. Or, or he truly believes that both of them are going to return to the servants. He wants to know the mystery of God's plan of redemption, and God is going to reveal it to him. He knows this, and his faith in their return is founded upon it. Even if his son dies, he will live again. And so he tells them that they will both return. And there's no need to speculate on this, and commentaries that say otherwise are wrong. As I say, whenever you read something wrong in a commentary, put a big X over it. You don't want that kind of stuff in your head. First, God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 17, verse 19, and he repeated it in Genesis 21, 12. Here's one of them. It says, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. God has promised that Isaac will live and have descendants. But at this point in time, Isaac isn't even married, and he's not certainly a father yet. And so Abraham's test of faith is exactly that. It is a test of faith. No matter what Abraham does to Isaac, he is to have faith in the previous promise that Isaac will live and have children. When later in the Bible, James says that Abraham was justified by works which accompany his faith, he's speaking of this very act. And the work is a work of faith in and of itself, as I explained to you earlier. This isn't meant to be confusing, but what God is asking of Abraham is faith in the previous promises, not in some unknown quantity. And this is borne out in what he says to his servants right now, what he says to Isaac later, and what the book of Hebrews says about this very account. There it tells of what would otherwise be hidden. Here it says in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he... Isaac, who had received the promises, or Abraham, offered up his only begotten son. But the promises come through Isaac, of whom it was said, In Isaac shall your seed be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead. 
from which he also received him in a figurative sense. God is using an Abraham as an example of two, two pertinent points. The first is a picture of what he is going to do in his own son. And second, as a lesson for us. God already promised Abraham that Isaac would have children and that through him would come the Messiah of the world. Now he is being tested to see if he will follow through with something which seems contradictory to that, taking of Isaac's life. Here's what we want to think in our mind. If God has spoken, then what I have been asked to do cannot stop what has already been promised. This is the lesson for us. God has recorded this, and he's recorded many other things in his word. Now what he asks us to do is to stand on the promises which are found there, even when things seem contradictory to those promises. And I'm going to tell you what, Romans 8.28 is a perfect example of this. I see people quoting it all the time when things are going well. But when things are going bad, the first thing that comes out of their mouth is, why does God hate me? Why is God doing this to me? Instead of standing on what they've been quoting for the past, you know, how many years of their life in church. Here's what it says. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. Abraham knew this. The sacrificing of his son was certainly not something he wanted to do. But all things are being worked together for good. And he knew that. If this is true, Romans 8.28, and it must be because it's recorded in God's word, then when something happens in our life which is bad or which seems to contradict God's love for us, then we are to trust that what God is doing is correct. He's already got it figured out. In other words, and in very plain English, he wants us to not be unstable and not to be wavering in our faith. This is what God is trying to tell us through Abraham. Do not waver. Do not be unstable. Do not call God's goodness into question or do not call his integrity into question. Instead, stand firm and stand fast on what he has said, such as Romans 8.28, and continue on with what he is now doing in your life, even if it's the death of a loved one or, or something else bad that has occurred. He's asking us to hold fast to the promises he's already made. A good way to look at this is, this is a combination of a couple of Jesus' words that I'd like to put together for you. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world, and nothing can separate us, and nothing can take my love from you. What shall we say then? Paul tells us what we can say in Romans 8. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When he says any created thing, that means anything subservient to God. Nothing can take away God's love for those who have called on him as Lord. And that brings us to our third and final thought today. God will provide. Verse 6, So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. Once again, as we have already seen many times in these first six verses, this is a foreshadowing of what Jesus will do. Abraham placed the wood on his son, and he took the fire in his hand along with the knife. The wood represents Jesus' cross and our sins. In John 19, we read this about the wood. And he, bearing his own cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha, where they crucified him. 
and the two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. In both Isaiah 53 and in 1 Peter chapter 2, the Bible records that the Lord placed our sins on Jesus. That was a very heavy burden that he carried up that hill. And the wood was only fuel for the fire of God's wrath upon the sins of man. I've said it many times, and I will say it many more times in my life, that God is angry at sin, and his wrath is going to burn against that sin. This wrath is either going to be poured out in the crucifixion of his own son and our acceptance of that deed, or it would be poured out in us as we receive the full measure of the deserved destruction. And personally, I choose Jesus. The fire and the knife that are being carried by Abraham is also represented in Isaiah chapter 53. There we read about the one who determined and set forth the sacrifice, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you made his soul an offering for sin, and he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This plan The sacrifice of Jesus Christ was set in motion, according to the book of Revelation, at the foundation of the world. And it was the Father who determined that it would be accomplished. Just as Abraham determined in his own mind to go through with with what was being asked. He carried the wood, I'm sorry, he carried the knife and he carried the fire and his son carried the wood. What Abraham is prefiguring here is the greatest act in all of history. God the Father pouring out all of his wrath on the sins of mankind in his own son. This passage in Genesis is given to show us two demonstrable truths. First, that God is holy and he will judge all sin. And secondly, that God loves us and that he is willing to step out of eternity and unite with humanity and bear that judgment upon himself. Verse seven, but Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. Then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Isaac asked an obvious question here. Dad, I've got the wood and you have the knife and the fire, but where is the lamb? A lamb is an animal of the flock. It's not something you're going to find wandering around out in open country. This makes the question all the more direct. Dad, there are no herds around here and you didn't bring a lamb. So where is the lamb? Where does it come from? And his answer is coming and it is not a lie. Verse 8, and Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Abraham has already been called a prophet of God. His words, when they are recorded in the pages of the Bible, do two things. First, they tell us what he said. And secondly, when spoken in a future sense, as he did here, they are prophecies. Abraham is not lying to his son. Instead, he is revealing two truths to us. One is that God provided Isaac, the son of promise, and the miraculous birth to a woman that was beyond the age of childbearing. And Isaac, therefore, is the burnt offering. In essence, Abraham is saying, son, it is you. But Abraham probably told him more because it says the two of them went on together. He probably reminded Isaac that God had already promised a line through him and that his death would not be final or God would be a liar. That's something that's impossible. But what is also a prophecy of his words, Abraham is speaking of the coming Christ, the Messiah. And this is absolutely certain because sacrifices were already being conducted even from the time of Cain and Abel. If those sacrifices were satisfactory to appease God, then they would have stopped being offered, but they didn't. 
Therefore, like everything else that Abraham already knew, there had to be a fulfillment of them in one way or another. And none of this is speculation. It is reasonable and it's understandable when taken in the context of the Bible. Abraham was merely demonstrating faith in this. God would provide the lamb. Abraham in his walk up this hill with his son was learning that Isaac is an expressive type of the Messiah. Every other sacrifice that had been offered from the foundation of the world had been those chosen by men and offered to God. But Isaac was asked for by God. And so this looked forward to the true Lamb of God provided by God himself, Jesus Christ. Next week, we're going to see the completion of this amazing passage. But until then, let me take just a couple of minutes and explain to you the significance of the Lamb of God and what he did for you. Jesus Christ, as I've said several times during our talk today, is a sinless human being. He was born sinless and he lived sinlessly. And then he gave his life up as a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the world. God took all of the wrath that he has for the sins of fallen man and he put it on his own son. And he says, if you will simply accept what I have done here in my son by faith, then I will grant you eternal life. And how do we know that we have eternal life? Because the Lamb of God that was slain on Calvary came out of the grave. Sin is, the death is the result of sin. If he came out of the grave, that means that he never sinned and therefore death could not hold him. He is eternal in his being and in his nature. And God says, you will be like him if you accept what I have done in him. And all he asks us to do is to simply say, I accept him as my Lord. I accept what he has done in exchange for what I've done. And if we will simply do that one thing, if we'll call out on the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we have peace with God. God seals us with the Holy Spirit and it is a done deal. So if you've never done that, please today consider what God has done in his own son for our benefit. It was the most wonderful gift of all. Next week, we're going to talk about the last verses of this chapter, Genesis 22, 9 through 24. It will be entitled, The Lord Will Provide. Now, before we take communion, we have uh, uh, the weekly poem that I do each week. And this is called, A Difficult Journey, A Hard Climb, Strong Faith. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am, O king of kings. I am at your service no matter what the exam. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to Moriah, that land. Offer him there as a burnt offering. Don't be slack. Go to one of the mountains of which I shall command. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey for the ride. He took two of his young men, giving no forewarning, and Isaac, his son, went by his side. Then he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of the proffering. He went to the place which God had told to him, and it's certain the pain in his heart was quite grim. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off in the distance. And he told his men to stay with the donkey and supplies. I will go yonder. This is my insistence. And we will come back to you, my son Isaac and I. This is what we will do. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife for the proffering, and the two of them went together for the deed to be done. Then Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, but dad, here I am, my son, what is your bother? And he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham spoke and Isaac understood, my son, God will provide for himself 
the lamb of the proffering. So the two of them went together, Abraham and his son, to do the deed which God asked to be done. What we learn is that God's demand, God demands our allegiance in every matter, yes, every part of our life. Our attitude is to be faithful without belligerence, even if it means carrying a sacrificial knife. God looks for faith in his faithless people, and he is pleased when he finds it dwelling in us. It is a lesson to be taught beneath the church steeple, and when we possess it, he counts it a plus. And so let us demonstrate faith in his word, and remember that we are man, and he is the Lord. Yes, he is the only one worthy of our praise, and so we shall offer it all of our days. Great, awesome, and splendid God, help us in our faith to grow and in thy light to trod. Hallelujah and amen. Glorious Heavenly Father, thank you for the story of Abraham and Isaac and the faith that that man possessed, something that I don't think that anybody here could truly say, yes, I could do that. Until we look at your promises and we understand your word and that you cannot lie, and if you've given us a promise, then anything that happens after that promise cannot negate what you have spoken. Help us to remember this lesson, that when you have said that all things are being worked out together for good, for those who are called according to your purposes, that it's true. And that we have no doubt that nothing in all of creation can separate us from your love for us. Thank you for that lesson. Help us to remember it. Help us to give you glory and honor and praise every moment of our lives. And may we bring you honor, the honor that you are due. And we say this in the name of the exalted and glorious Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.